Well, hi, everybody. I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors. I am um, really privileged to be a part of this church right now and this series, and it's so exciting, uh, all that's going on. Um, I resonate with joy. I resonate with don't. Who doesn't, right? Who doesn't resonate with joy? And my sermon today is about the phrase in the scriptures that we may be sort of familiar with, the joy of the Lord is our strength. In fact, if we said, what's the scripture teach about joy? Many of you may come up with that verse and say, well, I think the scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And who doesn't resonate with both joy and strength? Who doesn't resonate with the longing to have more joy and to have more strength? I loved Ben's message last week. It was impactful for me on a personal level. I've shared that with him a couple of times during the week. I've been resonating on it. I've been looking for the bunt cakes in my day. Were you here and you heard that? Uh, And dovetailing with the theme of Mother's Day this uh, weekend, uh, up until late last night, Linda and I were out at the beach with uh, her extended family. It was her mom's 90th birthday. Uh, Audrey is uh, one of my spiritual moms, and uh, it was her 90th birthday, and the siblings got together, rented a house, so Linda and her three siblings, so four kids, and and then all the grandkids and great-grandkids came out yesterday for a lunch. And in addition to just the craziness of, and Audrey, she's 90, but she's a big A's fan, so we had the big screen TV on uh, with the A's-Yankees game. And, uh, and in addition to all that, she was, I just watched her walk around finding this joy and delight in these grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She wore a crown. Um, it said across there, respect the crown, because she's the queen of the family. And, uh, and there was a sharing time, and people got to speak words of encouragement or things that they had received from her. And the one who started it was one of the granddaughter's husbands who just said, well, that's easy, because I came into this family, I started dating into this family as an atheist. And the spiritual legacy that you've created to your daughter, and then to her daughter, and then to me, God captured my heart. I'm a Christ follower because of your legacy. Now, not a dry eye in the place at that point. And then one after another, everybody said, well, the impact you've had on my life, the impact you've had on my life. I came away from that time. I'm sure, I mean, Audrey just must be blown out out of the water. But I came away from that time full of joy and strengthened. There's some relationship between joy, which strengthens us, and getting strengthened, which brings joy, right? There's some beautiful uh, uh, synthesis, that's not the right word, uh, synergy between joy and strength. And the scriptures says the joy of the Lord is our strength, and so I wanted to dig into the scriptures and go, what's that going to teach us about our journey with Jesus as we're looking to be people who are stronger in our faith and in the life that we want to live and stronger in joy, being more joyful. And so I went to Nehemiah to start to study it and I thought, you know what, it's so beautiful and so complex that I can't not have you study it with me. And so uh, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm not going to have it on the screen because it's so lengthy. This is the one verse in verse 10. I'd love for you to pull out your Bibles, and we're going to be in our scriptures. We're going to leave the lights up a little bit, and uh, we're going to walk through it together. And after we're through the entire, we'll make some observations, and after we're through the entire passage, we will, um, we'll see what kind of time I have to make some comments on it. But Nehemiah chapter 8, so the Bible's in front of you. Um, it would be good to use those because then we're all in the same translation. Somebody have a page number for me? I was already whipped out that Bible. and 483. 
483, thank you, in those Bibles. Everybody, love you to have, I don't think you're going to be able to track with me if you don't have the text right in front of you because it's so long. So love to have everyone in it, in the scripture. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 4, I mean, page 483, right? 483? I'll wait for everybody to get there. If you see uh, in your Bible that uh, there's actually a, uh, the sentence begins, it's an odd verse uh, division. The sentence begins uh, in, with verse 53, I think, uh, or 73 of uh, chapter 7, just above. And so we start reading it, that paragraph. Everybody got, got it? Everybody with me? Got Nehemiah chapter 8? When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. Did you know the Watergate was there back there in 444 BC? <laughs> the seventh month, and in just a sec, we're going to get to verse two where it says the first day of the seventh month, something happened. This is the year 444 BC. The context here is that in 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians who were the enemies of the Israelites. And so Jerusalem was destroyed and, 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 and as a, a, a sort of the big, the big deal of that was the temple was destroyed. And so the temple that served as the dwelling place of God, the the picture of God being with God's people, the presence of God with the Israelites was wiped off. People were uh, exiled and, uh, and they were decimated both as a religious and a cultural people. And many of those people were carried off into exile in Babylon. This is 586 B.C. 70 years later, which, by the way, Jeremiah prophesied, He said, this is going to happen for 70 years, and I'm going to bring you back into the land. 70 years later, so 586, 70 years later is what year? 516. Thank you. I'm trying to make sure you're engaged this morning. 516, uh, the temple is rebuilt. And so the beginnings of the renewal of God's people. Now, don't we resonate with God's people that they're God's people, they're faithful, they get unfaithful, and then they get wiped out, and their lives are decimated, and they're like, oh, jeez, man, what did, I, what did we do? And then they come back, and then they respond to the Lord, and then they, and then they get all, all complacent, and then another enemy comes in, or another time comes in, and they, their whole religious or cultural life gets decimated. Well, in 516, they rebuild the temple 70 years later, just like the prophet Jeremiah had said. They couldn't believe it, and they come back into the land, and uh, this is now a process of rebuilding where they are. Now this, is, now, this is now we're all the way down to, uh, I think um, Ezra had arrived like at 458, and 14 years later, 13 and a half years later, in 444, Nehemiah arrives, and they have been in the process of rebuilding the wall. That's where we are. So they built the, they rebuilt the temple, the foundations, and then the temple, so their worship life could begin, and they began to rebuild the city, and the final completion of that in 444. So this is a ways now. Remember 516, the temple was Rebuilt 444. How many years is that? I can't even do the math. Seven, thank you, 72. Awesome. You got a calculator or just a thing in your head? That, all right. <laughs> they rebuild the walls, and now that's the final straw of them being an intact people that could defend themselves, preserve what it is that God called them to be. And this is the story, and this is where we find ourselves. And so Nehemiah has come from Babylon as one of the uh, people returning to the land. He's the governor, and uh, they have now settled in their own towns. 
they gathered together before the water gate. All the people came together and they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So they get God's word together. So they're all there. This is a significant time. And it says in verse two, so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Uh, The first day of the seventh month happens to be their uh, New Year's Day. And they were probably in the habit of gathering together on New Year's Day. That's what we call that today, Rosh Hashanah. They gather together on this New Year's Day, and they're like, all right, let's take inventory about where we are as God's people. And so Ezra, the priest and the teacher of the law, gets the book of of the law, which is probably the Pentateuch, the first five books, the excuse me, choked on my spit, the revealing of God's word to his people. And... uh, So on the first day of the seventh month, now we're here in verse two, the priest brought the law before the assembly. The assembly was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. That means on all children old enough to understand. So everybody got in on this deal. Now, as you know, back in those patriarchal cultures, the the women weren't always invited to every one of these gatherings, but this was a big deal. Everybody was together, first day of the new year. Let's talk about where we're at. And he brought the word of God out. Men, women, children of all ages. Your children are there. Your children get in there and it's like, you can understand this. So by the way, when you're praying together with your spouse, when you're having Bible study, you, get, you don't need your kids to go run around and babble and be wild. You know that, right? They're old enough to be like, hey, hey, we're honoring the Lord right now. So you be quiet, okay? <laughs> like they brought the kids in and said, you get this. You can get this. Now listen, the priest is now standing up there before with the law in front of the whole assembly. Verse three, he read it aloud. Get this, church. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. That is what I am talking about. (laughs) Five or six hours, he preached or read the scriptures for five or six hours. He read it aloud because, of course, that's how they read the scriptures back then. Before the water gate, in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So here's people getting together, paying attention. Now I'm preaching to the choir right now because you're all here and you're all listening attentively and you're here because you came to hear the word of the Lord and you're attentive to what God wants to say. That's why I like to preach that way with, when I start by saying, let's put our hands out, let's respond to the Lord. It's that idea of saying, wait, am I attentive? Am I ready to hear from God? Am I going to come and listen to what God has for me? Oh, right. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to listen. That attentiveness. There's a, there's a word in there, isn't there, for us? There's, a, there's just this reminder, no matter what else the scripture is going to teach, that the people got together and they stood and they listened attentively. We're not so good at attention span anymore these days. Wavers a little bit. But it's a task that God's people have had before them for hundreds and hundreds of years. Verse four, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Do you see where we get some of our traditions already? (laughs) Beside him on his right, are you looking ahead and you're feeling bad for me right now? (laughs) Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah, and on his left were Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, Hashbadna, which by the way, if you're pregnant right now, <laughs> I think Hashbadna is the new word, the new name. 
for boys in the next, you know, <laughs> or girls. Don't be alarmed if I just have that nickname for you. This is like a little pet name. Hashbadna, what's up? Zechariah and Meshulam. The point is there are 13 people. On his right stood six, on his left stood seven, or whatever the numbers break up. He's got these people together. He's got a group of elders. He's got some men, in this case, who are saying, we're with you. We're people of God's word. Let's look into what God's word says. There's a, there's a, 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 a company of leaders, a company of saints who said, we're in this together. And Ezra opened the book and all the people, this is verse five, you see it? All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, they all stood up. They were at this time in this season of their journey with God that they were hungry for what God had for them. They had been in exile. They had not received all the teaching that they had in all of the centuries going before that. They had apparently generations of kids, of then adults, of even old people who didn't understand who God was. And now they were back in the land. They were settled in their town. The temple was built. The walls were constructed. They were God's people. And they said, what are we going to be? What are we going to be about? And so the Ezra the priest stood up, opened the word, and started talking about what they were going to be about. And for six hours, the entire assembly stood and listened to the word and responded. And he was standing above them, and as he opened it, all the people stood up in respect for that. And verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. And they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now picture this, this is five hours of the word being opened and the word being read aloud and the, the leaders gathered together listening and being attentive and women and men and children of all ages hearing the word of God and they began to respond as they stood in honor that this was God speaking to his people because they cared what God said to his people and they stood up and they said amen, amen. It's repeated in, there in the Hebrew for us because there was this sense in which it just kept going. It was amen. It kept saying amen, amen to that. Amen, may it be is what it means, amen. Let it be, let that be true, amen. And then they began to worship and fall down on the ground because they thought, I can't respect God. Let me, let me stand before the word. Let me bow down on the ground. Let me stand up to honor God. Let me just get on my face before God. Let me say amen. Do you see that God was moving in his people, church, as they responded to the word, Verse seven, the Levites, oh, okay. The Levites, <laughs> Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbathai, Shabbathai Hodiah, Maaseah, Ma- Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, And Pelaiah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. There's another group of people. They were the Levites. And they instructed the people. So now they broke up into small groups. They're reading the word. They're reading it aloud. They're standing up. They're amening. They're bowing down. They're worshiping. And then these other guys get up and it says that they instructed the people while they were standing there. So they went out into the crowd and they gathered people together. And these 13 leaders were teaching the word and disseminating the information that way. Verse 8, they read from the book of the law. Look what it says, making it clear. It may mean translating, but it, but it means making it clear. 
doing it in a way, they read from the book from God, making it clear, giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. This was the source of the revival that after all of this time in exile, out of all this time without people that had taught them about what it was like to live for God, they began to hear the truth in ways that they could understand it and revival broke out. That's what we do That is what we are about as a church. How is it that we can keep communicating the things of God in ways that we can understand it and in ways that the whole world could understand it? We translate it into languages and go all over the world with it, but we also translate it into our cultural understanding. We translate it in ways so that people can understand this good news of God. They read from the book, verse 8, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then Nehemiah the governor, verse 9 Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, so it looks like all three of them are saying this. Nehemiah saying it, the priest Ezra saying it, the Levites were saying it. They were all instructing everybody. They said, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Now don't miss this. They said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord. This day where we're encountering God and reading his word, it's holy to the Lord. So what was their encouragement? Don't do what? Don't mourn or weep. They were mourning or weeping. And it says that in the next sentence, doesn't it? What does it say? It says, for the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They encountered God and it created a remorse in them. We'll talk about that in a minute. And so they began to mourn and weep. And so the message of the leaders as the word of God went out is, don't mourn or weep. This day is holy to the Lord. Don't mourn or weep. Then verse 10, and this is how we got to this text on this day, studying Joy, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food. That means fatty food, by the way. (laughs) Fatty food. If your body craves it, you got to give it to it. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Go enjoy fatty food and sweet drinks. That's sugar. (laughs) Cheeseburgers and Coke. (laughs) Not tofu and Diet Coke. Just kidding. So... Go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. So the care for the poor. This day is holy to the Lord. He repeats it. Do not grieve for what? Say it with me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now that is not the context that I thought we would find when we said, well, we're going to preach on joy. We should probably go to the text where it says the joy of the Lord is our strength to figure out what that's teaching, which is exactly how we got to this place. We said, we should talk about joy. We've been talking about fear. Let's talk about joy. It's such an important concept. I said, okay, I'll do one on the joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm not really sure where that is right now, but I'll preach on that one. And then we end up in this context where the people of God had been scattered across the world, brought back by miracles, living in partial knowledge. God ordained leaders to be in place to speak The truth about who God was and the response of the people was weeping and mourning. And Nehemiah says, that doesn't have to be your response. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but look at the rest of it. Then the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do you remember when I preached on be still and know that I am God? The word be still means hush, enough, enough from you. Shh. 
Just sit and let it sink in what is true. Stop your striving, stop your angst, stop your worrying. Just sit and let it be true what is true. And what is true in this context is the joy of the Lord is gonna be your strength. We don't even know what that means yet. I still got 20 minutes left in my sermon. We don't even know what it means yet, but he's like, enough, enough, shh. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And then all the people, the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day, do not grieve. Then verse 12, then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food to others who needed it. And they celebrate, and to celebrate with great joy. Why? Everybody look at that phrase, the end of verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. The word of God had become clear to them. The truth about who Yahweh was had become true. The truth uh, had been made aware of them. The truth about who they were as God's ordained people had been illuminated in a way that they understood it and they went away with great joy. It goes on to talk about them then celebrating the, the, the feast of what we call the Feast of Tabernacles or of booths, which had been laid out in, in uh, Exodus and Leviticus for them to celebrate. It's a fascinating uh, concept. Jewish people today still celebrate Sukkot or Sukkot, where they build temporary shelters in their house to commemorate the the God's taking care of them where they lived in temporary shelters in the desert from Egypt to Canaan and how much God had uh, blessed the fruitfulness of Canaan. So it's a celebration of what God has done. So on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families along with the priests and the Levites gathered around Ezra. So this is the next day now to give attention to the words of the law again. And they found written in the law, they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites, I'm in verse 14, were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches of olive trees and, and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees and make temporary shelters as it's written because they went out and they said, this, we're gonna live, we're gonna put on our rooftops and in the courtyards of our houses, we're gonna live. And it says that the people went out, brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and, by one of, uh, and one by the gate of, Eph of Ephraim. So they, they built these temporary shelters and the idea was that they would live in them to commemorate what God had done in the past. And the whole company had returned from exile that had returned from exile from Babylon. They built these temporary shelters and lived with them in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this and their joy was very great. From the days of Joshua, they'd not celebrated like this. They'd celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. They'd celebrated this setting up these booths and remembering that God had led them out of Egypt and provided for them in the desert and then provided for them in Canaan and blown their doors off by how fruitful the promised land was. They'd celebrated that over and over, but they'd never celebrated it like this, it says. And their joy was very great. Why had they not celebrated it like that? Verse 12, at the end of verse 12, because they now understood the words that had been spoken to them. Is that not an incredible passage? Do you want me to read the names of those people again? 
I give myself like a B for that. I did all right. What is it that we know? Here's what we know when we read this passage. We know at least this about joy and strength. We know that understanding the truth brings us great joy that strengthens us. This is what you see in this text, that understanding the truth, there's, a, there's an understanding and a truth part of it. They were exposed to the truth of the word of God, which they had not. They went and found the word and they brought it out and they had had less than stellar uh, track record in studying God's word and understanding God's truth to that point since the exile. So they were living in a relative ignorance about it. So this was, the lights were coming on for them. But so there was this understanding of truth and the understanding part, it wasn't they just, they heard the truth, they understood it in a way they never had before. Did you see that in the, throughout the text? That's why they celebrated it like they hadn't done since the times of Joshua because they were like, oh, we are getting it. And it brought this incredible joy. So there was an understanding, there was a grasping of it. And in the text that we just read, that long passage from Nehemiah 8 that we just read, you see that idea in there of them grasping and understanding all the men, the women, verse 2, who, and all those, all the people of age who could understand it. You see that there? Verse 3, he read aloud to all those who could understand, and they listened attentively. Verse seven and eight, those Levites instructed the people, making it clear, giving the meaning so they could understand what had been read. There's a grasping of the truth here. This is what we know, that there's an understanding of truth that is at the root of this joy and strength thing. There's an understanding and a grasping of the truth. Now, before I come back to that a little bit, and you see that there's joy And that brings great joy. You see the joy saying so over and over. The joy of the Lord is your strength. They experienced great joy. They'd never experienced joy like that uh, since the days of Joshua. They'd never uh, celebrated in that way. I love that idea. I love going to a party and going, man, we haven't partied like this since Joshua. (laughs) And that strengthens. There's some grasping of truth that brings great joy that brings strength. The joy of the Lord is going to be our strength. In this context, and the reason why I took you through uh, 20 minutes of, of Nehemiah 8 is, A, so that you can see how rich God's word is to study it in context and dig in. B, because there's something in this context to just say to somebody, the joy of the Lord is your strength is a sweet plaque on your grandma's bathroom wall. But what does it mean for us? What was the context in Nehemiah 8 for why they needed strength? Why did Nehemiah, by verse 10, say to them, the joy of the Lord is your strength? Why would he think that they needed strength? What was happening? They were grieving grieving and they were mourning. Why were they grieving and mourning? Anybody know? Did you hear what Arv said? They fell so far short of what was written in the law. Guys, the context of this sweet little phrase, the joy of the Lord is our strength, is a group of people understanding the truth that brought great joy that strengthened them because they knew how weak they were by understanding who God was 
and what he had created them to be. When the word of God is read and the word of God is preached, when you dig into the word of God, when you meditate on the word of God, it will have an effect on you of giving you great wisdom. It'll have an effect on you and giving you putting, you know, connecting dots. It'll have all kinds of great effects on you. You'll learn so much. But one of the things that it will do is it will create a holy mourning over how far short you've fallen of God's plan for you and for humankind and for our culture and for our whole world. And so people, godly, sensitive, humble people, when they're presented with the truth of God's word, they mourn and they weep. And they go, God, how far we've fallen. How far short we are of being the people that you long for us to be. Not moral, perfect people, but the people wholly devoted. Think about what's in the word of the law of the Lord, the book of Moses. When you read the book of Moses, man, when you get stuck in Leviticus on those little small laws, you're missing the whole point. You get into Deuteronomy and you hear that the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You go in there and you recognize that this is a God who has asked for our faithfulness, who would love and engage us if we submitted our lives to him for his wisdom, for his leading, for his kingness in our life. And when we fall short of that, when we read the word, we realize how far short of that we have felt. So before talking any more about the joy of the Lord, listen, I just need to ask us and challenge us. Do you listen attentively to the word of God so that you can grasp that fundamental truth that he's a God who has asked for all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And that you would compare how you're doing with that and align yourself with the truth in God's word. Do you listen attentively to God's word? Are you in God's word so that you're aligning yourself with how far short you've fallen? And having a weeping and a mourning, saying, God, I want more, and I want more of what you have designed for me. And then, let me ask you this part. I'm asking if you're going to listen attentively, if you're listening to God's word and and hearing, understanding that truth that's going to bring great joy. But do you respond then remorsefully and so want to line up your lives in repentance with God's truth? This is a big word. This is a hard text. This is, this is, This is Christianity graduate school, friends. This is saying the love of God is there for sure, but there's a submission to God that the word calls us to, and when we recognize that we haven't lived up to it, we say, oh, woe is me. I'm not the man you desired me to be, and so therefore my family's not the family that it could be, and my city's not the city it could be, and my school system's not the school system it could be, and my church isn't the church that it could be. God, have mercy on me. Call me to be more and deeper and further? Do you respond woefully and mournfully in repentance to how far short you've fallen of God's standard of submitting to him in all things and receiving him as your king? Come on now, church. That's a hard word, isn't it? But see where we're going with this? Responding, understanding that truth doesn't bring shame. It doesn't bring guilt. It brings joy that strengthens us. And so we got to go on after I ask you those two hard questions. Do you listen attentively to the word to grasp that one fundamental truth that life is about an engagement with this holy God? And am I the person that he has called me to be? 
And then do I respond mournfully when I'm not that person? Then I ask you those questions, but then we go on and say, okay, well then what else is here? God, yes, for a holy unrest, but what else is here in this text? We ask, what is the joy of the Lord and how does it strengthen us? Because that's what we have to get to in this. Because it's good news. It's really good news, even though it sounded really intense and scary. What is the joy of the Lord? We know it's at least this, friends. We know it's at least the joy that the Lord gives us. It's, it's one of two things, and in a very Hebrew way, it's going to be both. It's the joy that the Lord gives us. What's the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? That means God's going to give you joy, and that will be strength for you. That's what that means, right? It's a simple understanding. Just grammatically, you, you would make, it would make sense to you. It's the joy of the Lord that strengthens us. It's, it, it's a joy that comes from God. It's a joy that comes from God to you. He gives it to you. It's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? The fruit of the Spirit is, the first one is love, and the second one is, it's right there, top of the list. So abiding with Christ, having God's Spirit inside of us, then the joy is going to be something that God is giving us as we continue to grow. Now think about the metaphor of growing. We grow in seasons, we manifest fruit, not one, like, like it's, you don't always have joy all the time. It's just not, it's just not all the joy that you could have. So it's a great metaphor, but it's inside us and it comes out of us. But it's something that God gives us. Look at John 15, 11. This is a, just explicitly Jesus saying he's gonna give us joy. He says this in John 15, I've told you this, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My joy is gonna go in you. I'm gonna give you joy and your joy will be complete. Jesus is talking to them. Remember, anybody remember the context of, of John 15? What's the context of John 15? The vine and the branches. If you remain in the vine, you'll bear much fruit. And then Jesus said, I told you this, so that my joy will be in you. I'm gonna give you joy. And then your joy is gonna be complete. So what's the joy of the Lord? It's that God, in fact, would give us his joy. Would, so go back to that, that slide, that the joy that the Lord gives us, that's what the joy of the Lord is. Well, how does that strengthen us? Well, it strengthens us because we, it's a head and a spirit thing. It strengthens us, and Ben's sermon talked about this, is because we are, cons- we, we, are um, we are, because of the Holy Spirit's involvement, aware and transformed, aware in our heads and transformed in our hearts that we're people of hope, that God knows the end of the story, that we're redeemed, that we're eternal in nature. All those good news things happens from God and that ends up strengthening us. And this is why you have these consider sorts of words. James 1 talks about joy. It says, consider it pure what? Joy when you face trials of many kinds. What? So there's a consideration thing going on there. God's like, listen, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must continue its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's James 1. And so there's this thing of consider this truth, friends. It's going to strengthen you. Joy, you're going to have this joy that God's at work and there's something bigger going on. See, the, here the consider part. Think about the angel announcing it in Luke chapter 2 when the angel came to the shepherds and said, I bring you good news. Here's good news of great, what? Joy that a savior has been born. The world's rescued. The savior's come. You see it? There's a considering thing. 
And so we're going to consider these things. And in knowing that, and with the Spirit working within us, us abiding with the Spirit, we're going to become more and more head and heart people of joy. So the joy of the Lord plainly means that the Lord gives us joy. Now don't miss this, because this, in fact, is also true. The joy of the Lord means the joy that the Lord possesses. The joy of the Lord is your strength is you're going to be joyful because God's going to give you joy through his spirit and through you considering these truths. But it also had you considered that it could mean that the joy the Lord possesses gives you strength. Nehemiah says, don't grieve or mourn because God possesses this joy. The happiness of God is going to be your strength. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Just think semantically. They don't know and they think, Hebrew-wise, that it means both things. And so we got to thinking, you know, we, meaning we, meaning scholars throughout the centuries, you know, me and them. Um, (laughs) What would that mean? What does it mean? God's joy, the joy, do you track what I'm saying here about the Lord possessing the joy? The joy of the Lord, meaning the joy the Lord gives you, or the joy of the Lord, like, like, like Al's happiness affects you. Like Jesus' happiness affects you and becomes your strength. Well, then you ask the question, well, what, what is God joyful about? There's one verse in the New Testament that talks about God's joy. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus' joy. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This text is about considering the truth of Jesus, who ahead of him, if he went faithfully to the cross to provide salvation for the whole world, would find deep joy in being faithful to his father to do that. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, suffering its shame to accomplish salvation for you and me. So, the scriptures are teaching the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy that Jesus possesses in saving and rescuing you is strength to you. You can know that it has delighted God to rescue you and to forgive you and to bring you back to be his people. And so go back to the the context, you guys, as I finish here, of, of Nehemiah 8. The people had been far away from God, even generation after generation, they had lost it and not understood what it was all about. And the word of God got read and they considered it carefully. And as they realized how amazing this God is and how overwhelming this truth is, and they realized how far they had been from God and what they had missed and what their ancestors had missed and how the people who before them had dishonored this God, they wept and they mourned and they said, woe is us, how far we are from the truth. And Nehemiah in inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, you do not need to mourn over this, for it is God's joy to provide a rescue. 
You do not need to mourn. Yes, you are far away. Yes, your people have been far away. Yes, your church is not anything close to the perfect church on earth. But you do not need to mourn that for it is God's delight to provide a way. The joy of the Lord is to rescue you. The joy of the Lord is to bring fruit. The joy of the Lord is to restore you. The joy of the Lord is to do amazing things through you. And that is your strength. So buck up, hush, Listen, enough of you and how you failed, he says. It's God's delight to meet us and take us there. Is that not incredible? The joy of the Lord. He possesses possesses a delight to do that. Oh, I love the thought that God says it is my delight to wash your sin away to seal you with the Holy Spirit, to take you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves. It is my delight, God says, to bring salvation to you and to the world and to empower you as a man of God, as a woman of God, as a family, as a church, as a community. It's my delight to do that. Be strong in the truth that God delights in rescuing us. Do you need joy? Do you need strength? If you need joy, abide in him. If you're connected to the vine, the fruit of the spirit will come. You'll be more joyful and that joy will bring strength. Do you need strength because you mourn how far you are from the person you know that God longs for you to be? Well, then be in the word and reflect on the truth that it is God's delight to rescue you and receive that salvation with every fiber of your being. Abide in him that the spirit would create joy in you and that'll bring you strength and be in the word and consider that God delights to rescue you and you, through his joy, his joy in you being complete will give you the strength that you need to face the weak person that you are, the sinful person that you are, the disobedient person that you are, that you will not live in shame and you will not live in guilt and you will not live far away from God because it is his joy to bring salvation. Joy, strength, they come from a submission to this God and his truth.